careers are curious things. Some people have great ones, where it appears, from the outside at least, that everything was a smooth ride and all they touched turned to gold. Other careers appear to be a sequence of fortunate events, coincidences and serendipitous timings with nothing really planned. Yet other careers come within millimetres of catastrophe, and it is only blind luck, if not sheer grit and steely determination, that steers them through what would be for other people career-ending events. It is no secret that by the early 1990s, Neil Jordan's career had stalled and he had decided to give the dice one last roll. And if the numbers didn't come up, he was prepared to return to what he started out as, a novelist. In 1974, he was one of the co-founders of the Irish Writers' Cooperative, after which he soon published Night in Tunisia, a collection of short stories that won him the Guardian Fiction Prize. A full-length novel, The Past, followed in 1980, and another in 1983, by which time Jordan had already written and directed his first feature film, Angel. There, Stephen Ray starred as a saxophonist in a Northern Ireland show band who witnesses a terrorist assassination. Angel earned Jordan the London Evening Standard's Most Promising Newcomer Award. More success came with The Company of Wolves, an extremely imaginative reworking of werewolf legends, this time told from the point of view of a teenage girl. And then, in 1986, Jordan co-wrote Mona Lisa, where the late, great Bob Hoskins played an ex-con asked to chauffeur a high-class call girl. I do deliveries when I'm not punching for you. You're not punching for me. Well, what is it, then? What kind of deliveries? Mona Lisa, Mona Lisa, men have named you. That earned Jordan Golden Globe and WGA Award nominations, as well as the Best Actor Award for Hoskins at the Cannes Film Festival. Three pictures, each one a bigger success than the last. But then Hollywood came a courting, and as is so often the case when the budgets increase and the stars are inflated, the new talent gets squeezed and is all but squashed. Bloodied, if not completely bowed, Jordan retreated to Dublin, where, disillusioned with film, he was prepared to walk away from it all and return to literature. But he had an old screenplay that he had first presented in the months following the release of his debut film, Angel. The script, inspired by Frank O'Connor's short story, The Guest of the Nation, and Brendan Behan's play, The Hostage, was called The Soldier's Wife. The situation is simple. You're being held hostage by the Irish Republican Army. They've got one of our senior members under interrogation in Castle Ray. We've informed them that if they don't release him within three days, you'll be shot. By the time Jordan pitched his project, there was already in the works an adaptation of Bernard McClafferty's novel, Cal, about a young Catholic Belfast man sucked into the world of paramilitarism. Fearing the similar terrain would damage his own project, Jordan opted to set it aside. Then, some eight years later, he decided to revive it. But with its subject matter, financing was hard to come by. Jordan's script possessed such an astonishing mix of taboo subjects, politics, terrorism, race, gender and sexuality, that all the studios were warned off. It is difficult enough for any film to address openly just one of those issues, but a quintuple whammy was, well, five too many. 
So, rather than compromise to secure studio backing, the film went into production with a patchwork of unstable financing from Japan, Europe and the UK. Such were the strains that the film's producer, Stephen Woolley, and his independent production company Palace Pictures had to juggle his credit cards in order to pay the crew. By that stage, Jordan had decided to change the film's title. Stanley Kubrick had long been an admirer of Jordan's films, and it was he who pointed out that with The Soldier's Wife as a title, the audiences would be expecting a war film. So, not for the first time, and indeed not the last, Jordan chose an old song as the title for his new film. While held hostage, an unusual but meaningful friendship strikes up between Jody and Fergus, a member of the IRA. The first act climaxes with the British Army discovering where Jody is being held and storming the hideout. As Fergus tries to escape, Jody is killed, and as if in an act of penance, Fergus goes to London to take care of Jody's girlfriend, Dill. What about him? He was different. How different? As different as it's possible to be. Tell me about him. No. Shouldn't I go? Almost all the most celebrated twists in cinema come at the end of the film. Le Diabolique, Witness for the Prosecution, Psycho, Planet of the Apes, Rosemary's Baby, The Wicker Man, Solent Green, The Sting, Chinatown, No Way Out, Angel Heart, Fight Club, The Usual Suspects, The Sixth Sense, Memento, The Others, and Old Boy. Those twists worked because audiences were heavily invested in the emotional needs of the central characters. If they had not, the audiences would have just shrugged their shoulders and walked away. But it takes another sort of storyteller altogether to put the twist in the middle of the film. A twist at the end can be stunning, but there is little or no time left to deal with the consequences. Put your twist in the middle and, well, you've got to deal with every possible permutation that could result. And the final result was Jordan's winning the Oscar and WGA that year for Best Original Screenplay. Thank you. Thank you. Look, thank you very much. Uh, it was a difficult script to write. Uh, people said to me it was about characters that were unappealing and would be unappealing to audiences at large. But I think the way audiences have responded to this film has told me, anyway, that audiences have it in their hearts to embrace any range of characters and any range of points of view. What was so original about it, beyond the twist, of course, was that after the unexpected events, Fergus stuns himself by taking a course of action he had hitherto not known he could take, and at the same time, followed that course of action through because ultimately, it was in his nature. A scorpion walks across the river, but he can't swim. Goes to a frog, who can, and asks for a ride. Frog says, I'll give you a ride on my back. You'll go and sting me. Scorpion replies, it may not be in my interest to sting you since I'll be on your back with both a trap. Rock thinks about his logic for a while and accepts the deal. Takes the scorpion on his back, 
braves the waters, halfway over feels a burning spear in his side and realizes the scorpion has stung him after all. And as they both sink beneath the waves, a frog cries out, Why did you sting me, Mr. Scorpion? But now we both will drown. Scorpion replies, I can't help it. It's in my nature. With extraordinary dexterity, Jordan starts his plot with division and antagonism. And as the unlikely story gradually unfolds, we root for an IRA terrorist and homosexual transvestite to fall in love. Wider than that, and given its political content, we can certainly go wider. Human empathy bridges the political divide to trump intolerance, bigotry, racism and homophobia. How about that for a quintuple whammy? Now, I use the word bridges there, and not without good reason. If you look carefully at the film, you might just notice that Jordan was not content to let the dialogue carry all of the rich thematic subtext. No, Jordan created visual and sonic motifs that repeatedly but subtly reinforce the theme, and it is right there from the very start. For instance, the opening shot has us tracking across a river from right to left. On the soundtrack, we hear this song by Percy Sledge. By the end of the movie, when Dill comes to visit Fergus in jail, Fergus repeats the story of the scorpion and the frog, and the camera tracks away in the opposite direction from left to right. And the song playing over the end credits. The Crying Game was submitted to the Cannes Film Festival in 1992, but it was turned down because it was felt that the film was a bit too Anglo-Saxon. Instead, it premiered at the Venice Film Festival that autumn, after which it opened in Ireland and the UK to lukewarm reviews and underwhelming box office business. By then, Palace Pictures, the very company that had all but financed the film by juggling credit cards, had gone bust, and it looked as if the crying game would vanish without trace. However, the following spring, Miramax released it in the United States, where, thanks to a magnificent advertising campaign devised by Bob Weinstein, it was sold as the movie with the secret. And somehow, American audiences embraced the movie and went to see it in their droves, paying over $62 million at the box office. Be it luck, coincidence, serendipity or talent, sheer perseverance and determination, without them, perhaps Neil Jordan would never have gone on to direct the blockbuster Interview with the Vampire, the multi-Oscar nominated The End of the Affair, the historical epic Michael Collins, which won the Golden Lion at the 1996 Venice Film Festival, and The Butcher Boy, which was honoured with the Silver Bear at the 1997 Berlin Film Festival. The Crying Game is a masterpiece filled with many surprises, and to this day, repeated viewings still bring many rewards. Keep the film, keep